Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Aris Benedict. In this episode, we're talking about originality. Most writers strive for originality, and many readers complain when a plot or character is unoriginal. But how important is it, really? Some of our most popular and profitable media properties today are wildly unoriginal. Reboots, remakes, sequels, homages, or just stories very similar to things we've seen before. Here to talk to us about this is Stephen Mazur, assistant editor at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Hi, Stephen. Tell us about yourself. Hi, R.S. Great to be here. Yes, I I am an assistant editor at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I've been doing that for uh, nearly 10 years. I took over for uh, John Joseph Adams uh, just as he was getting ready to... uh, to leave to embark on uh, on his big career as an anthologist. Now, are you a published writer? Or? No, uh, I have. I mean, I guess you know they say that all editors are really just frustrated writers. <laughs> I've, I've tried to write uh, a few times. I took a couple of classes in college, and uh, I don't mind it. But you know, something that I've read and heard writers say that. Um, one of the things that I do for the magazine is I, uh, you know, I interview the the writers that we publish, and right. one of the stock questions that I like to ask is, you know, why do you like to write? So, mm-hmm. and usually they uh, tend to give an answer that's some riff on something that science fiction writer David Gerald once said, which is that I wasn't seeing the types of stories that. I wanted to read, so I decided to write them myself. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I've never felt that because to <laughs> me, there's, I mean, there's so much to read that there's more than I can read in, you know, probably three lifetimes. So I don't, I feel like I don't really have a story to tell. And even if I did, that would, you know, that, that would take time away from reading all this great stuff out there. Huh, I see. Yeah, because I think that was my answer to the question, too. Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of writers a lot of writers say that. What part do you play in choosing the stories that run in the magazine? Do you comb through the slush pile yourself, or sort of? I used to. Um, that was my primary job until Charlie Finley took over as editor. So for about I think about five years, I was the um, uh, I was the slush reader for the magazine. So you know, back in those days. Until Charlie became editor, uh, you know, we still got all of our uh, submissions through the mail. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. Actually, That's I, a long time ago. In, in certain ways, I kind of, uh, I, I still miss it. It was nice just having the, the stories on paper, just right in front of you, easy to deal with. Um, although having them online has yeah. its own uh, advantages. But uh, so, you know. My boss, uh, Gordon Van Gelder, the publisher of FNSF, he was also the editor at that time. So we'd get the mail in. He would look through the envelopes, pick out the names of the people that he knew or that he'd published already that he felt like he should look at. And I would get everything else. And it was my job to open up the mail and start reading. So, uh, yeah, I would reject stories or uh, pass them along to Gordon if I thought they were good or if they excited me or if I thought Mm. it was something that he would enjoy. We have another assistant editor who, uh, uh, Lisa Rogers, who mostly does copy editing, but she would also read Slush uh, when she was in 
on her day. Uh, she still works for us remotely. I think uh, she's out in Oregon hmm. doing postdoctoral work. Oh, wow. I forget what on. But yeah, so that was my job. It was uh, it was a great job. I think I had 19 stories that uh, I picked out of the slush and sent to Gordon, and he published those, hmm. which I think is a pretty good track record because, you know, we were pretty choosy. Yeah. That included... Callie Wallace's uh, first published story. It was something called Botanical Exercises for Curious Girls. And uh, she's gone on to publish four or five novels. Uh, and I also found, well, I, it, it's incorrect to say found because, you know, somebody would have yeah. published it. Anyway, I discovered it. Yes, I just, Me. <laughs> really what I'm saying is I just happened to be there the day that the story came in the mail. But I did read and send up to Gordon uh, Alyssa Wong's first story, uh, The Fisher Queen. That uh, nice. that got, yeah, it was cool. That got nominated for some awards, so that's that's fun. I like being able to, you know, just a, a fun little uh, feather in my cap. Well, so uh, Charlie's been the editor for I, I guess about four years now. He looks at all the submissions. We get them in on through the Moksha submission portal. Charlie looks at everything. Uh, we have some uh, additional first readers whose job it is to, like, you know, read, read through everything in the submission pile and, you know, they'll leave opinions on it because uh, that's something the system allows us to do. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's cool. And then, you know, Charlie will come through and also read it. So now I don't deal with slush the same way that I used to, mm. but I do... Uh, I give Charlie second opinions on stories that uh, he wants second opinions on. You know, I'm mm. thinking of buying this. Can you tell me what you think? And I also have free reign to basically just read whatever I want in the submission pile. So I get That's to neat. pick and choose. It's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's fun. Neat. And you guys are really good about getting back to people, at least with rejections, really quickly, which is something I. I appreciate. <laughs> it's very hard when you send out a story and you wait like six months and get a generic rejection letter. You guys are just like, with if you're not going to take it, then usually within a week or two, it's just like, nope, sorry. And that's it. Well, thank it's pretty you. nice. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Charlie and, and Gordon before him. It, it, it's important to be quick and we try to be as quick as we can. Yeah, yeah. And that is probably tough because I understand uh, your magazine gets a lot of submissions, like a, a lot. Like how many roughly would you say that you get in an average month? I checked this pretty recently. We get very nearly a thousand stories a month. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, I think in the like year to date, we've we've had almost 12,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, that's too many. That's it's a, a lot. It's and a lot. And you publish. Read. I mean, how many of those are you publishing? You you have a now it's a, your magazine comes out once every two months. And I right. mean, how many are there? Maybe like a dozen stories? Uh, yeah. That... Charlie tries to in each issue. We're trying to have between 10 and 12 stories. Uh, right. That's about as many as he like that makes for the best composition of an issue. Right. Too many and you can't really quite remember what all the, you know, what the best stories were and too few and you don't feel like you've gotten enough. So, yeah, right. in about a, in a year we'll get about, 
you know, almost 12,000 submissions, which I think is about as many as, say, Clark's World will get. Uh, they also get a lot. Yeah. So about 1,000 stories a month, but almost 12,000 a year, and we'll publish somewhere between 60 and 70 stories a year. But I think really for the Oof. past... For the past four or five years, it's really been more like somewhere between 60 and 65 stories. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I do the math every now and again because I've, I've been on a few uh, panels at conventions that are it's all about, like, you know, ask the editors stuff mm-hmm. so they want to know. So uh, our acceptance rate is like 0.6%. <laughs> yeah, that is a steep ratio. Holy cow. Yeah. So I'm guessing in order to be one of those 65 out of 12,000, you got to stand out a lot. Yes. Yes, you do have to stand out if you're going to get published in FMSF. Yeah. Now, how important is originality in concept and characterization and in plot structure when it comes to making that decision regarding what you accept and what you reject? I'd say it's important. It's an art, not a science. You know, sometimes it it can come down to feel. Like, I'd say there are uh, gradations of... Right, yeah, gradations. So, you know, some of the stuff that we publish, it's more traditional. Something along the lines of Gregor Hartman's work. You know, it's more along the lines of, you know, traditional future outer space science fiction. Mm. Or if you think of Matthew Hughes's fantasy stories. Right. You know, they're great reads, but, you know, he's very clearly and deliberately working in the tradition of Jack Vance, you know, far future dying earth where, you know, magic is indistinguishable from science. Right. So those stories are fun, but it's not exactly breaking new science fictional ground, even though, you know, they're worth publishing and they're certainly worth reading. So there's that side of it where in those cases, the originality, I, I guess is, is more on the, more on the margins I mean, like, mm. you know, Gregor Hartman is, is doing good work and it's fun reads. But I would definitely say that originality is definitely important when you're looking at as many stories as we are. Um, you know, the stories that uh, that you've published in our magazine. And uh, I'm also thinking of G.V. Anderson's uh, first story that we mm. published, I Am Not I. That was two right. summers ago. And uh, I would say from about a year ago, Shooting Iron by Cassandra Caw and Jonathan Howard. Oh, that was a neat one. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. right? Yeah, we can we can talk about that more. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I in a little bit, I think we're going to talk about remixing tropes. Yes. And yeah, I think that's, that's something that story does beautifully. Yeah, it, it it's cool. Like these are so these are all great examples of what I would at least would consider original work. You know, mm. at at FNSF we're always ready to be surprised. We always want to see something that uh, we haven't seen before. And it, I guess it's just, a, it's just a matter of, you know, how original is it going to be? It can be original at the margins. It can be, or it can be something we've like really never seen before. Right. But in, in that, I guess I would just say, because we'll, I guess we'll get into it more um, in, a, in a little bit, but... I would say in, in originality in today's in today's science fiction market, character is 
very important if you hmm. want your work to feel original because uh, it's it's tough to do it in plot nowadays because just so yeah. many stories have been have been written already. And there's a limited number of ways to combine the elements that make up a plot. <laughs> we have been telling stories for a very, very long time, and there's only so many types of endings you can really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you've done has been done before, probably. Also with sci-fi or, or uh, speculative fiction, well, it'd be kind of nuts to say like, oh, somebody else already did a robot story one time. We're never publishing robot stories again. <laughs> right. Because that's unoriginal. We already had a robot story once several years ago. No more. Someone already did a robot story. I mean, you. so just pure 100%, oh my god, I've never seen this before. That's not a realistic <laughs> <laughs> goal. And probably not a thing you should do, because to say like, oh, no one can ever write about this again, because somebody else did a couple of years ago is ridiculous and you're going to miss out on some pretty awesome stories well it, it all depends gordon joke would joke to me every once in a while that early on when when he was editing the magazine he, he wished that he just had like a little card that he could have printed up mm -hmm. so that he could send it out as a rejection saying that basically just said <laughs> damon knight did this idea 40 years ago and he did it better <laughs> Right. But I guess that's more of a, uh, that speaks more to how good of a writer Damon Knight was than, than anything else. Right. Or that he had the fortune of being born earlier than the rest of us. So right. we got to it first. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're coming on after decades of so much sci-fi, so much fantasy, so much horror being written and... I'm sure back in the 1930s, like you wrote about robots, it was like, oh my God. A mechanical man? That's amazing. Now it's not really impressive. We've had a hundred years of people doing robot stories. So to like stand out as with your robot story, it's got to be a really special robot story. Yeah. It's like, how, how can I be different? How can I set myself up? How can I set myself apart from 100 years of work? That's really hard. <laughs> That's really hard. Um, but that being said, among your submissions, do you see certain plots or stock characters or tropes used like way, way, way too often? Like I'm guessing things come and go in trends. I know there was a huge zombie trend in the early 2000s. And I'm guessing that in the 90s, post Anne Rice, there was a huge like horny vampire story trend, probably. Is there a current trend of, of tropes or stories or creatures or whatever that you just see overwhelmingly right now? Like, are there stories or tropes that you guys are getting just too much of right now? Yeah, yeah, uh, there is. And the, the zombie uh, trend, I think that, that came back at the end of the last decade. Because when I started the magazine, mm. we were right in the middle of that again. Oh, probably because of The Walking Dead, I bet. Yeah, The Walking Dead and John Adams, he either started or caught on at the right time, mm. the, the new zombie craze, because he had that big, oh, I forget what it's called now, but you know, he had his two big zombie anthologies, and the first one especially was a real big hit back in, like, uh, I think 2008. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it did very well. Everybody knows it. You know, Gordon told me once that for years after 
he would get a lot of dead returning to life stories. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So like zombie stories, ghost stories. Um, a lot of the times it wasn't even really, there wasn't even really a science fiction reason for it. The story would just be, this person's dead, now they're alive again. So, you know, he thought that all had something to do with uh, 9-11 trauma. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. I mean, weren't there a ton of ghost stories after World War One? I don't, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't. Be I think surprised. there was like a trend for a lot of haunting. It comes and goes. You can definitely see. Oh, this era has a big trend for for hauntings, and this era has a big trend for werewolves or vampires or something. And so much of it is just reactions to what's going on in the culture. Yeah, I mean, I will say that at least as far as ghost stories go, there's always kind of like. I think a baseline level of those because there's right. always, you know, some new writer who comes along or like not even new writer, but just, you know, somebody starts writing and they decide, what shall I write about? Hmm. I know I shall write about death. How right. shall I write about death? I know I'll write a ghost story. Nobody's done that before. Hey guys, <laughs> I got this crazy idea. What if a couple who has a young child or are expecting their first child moves into a house <laughs> that is haunted. You've never seen this before. Yeah. In your life. I've always wondered why we don't do more ghost renter stories. Oh. Like I could definitely see dealing with a shitty landlord going like, yeah, sorry, you're, you're going to lose your housing deposit because of the blood coming out of the walls. Like, but it's not mine. Like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you know that go maybe you brought the ghost in with you? <laughs> I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get an exorcism I'm not gonna I'm not paying for that uh, taking him to uh, small claims court yeah <laughs> just the <laughs> angst of like uh I know I can leave but this haunted apartment is the best that I can afford <laughs> I'm trapped in a lease I can't afford to break it I gotta <laughs> stay here for a year I can't afford to move yeah see that'd be a funny story I'd like to read yeah. that yeah or like uh or like a haunted airbnb like <laughs> like some sort of poltergeist thing like you know oh all the doors are locked we'll break the windows no don't i'll get a bad review yeah. But, oh yeah <laughs> but yeah so just in the in the time that that i've been here you know over the past you know decade or so you know we we've seen the petering out of the latest zombie craze. Uh, there was an urban fantasy trend for a few years, I want to say, from like 2010 to 2012. Hmm. You know, like vampires and werewolves in the city or... Vampires and werewolves. I wonder what that trend is a response to. I uh, can't imagine what piece of pop culture <laughs> that could be coming from. <laughs> My pet peeve story. <laughs> My pet peeve story from that time in in work was the werewolf private eye story you know it's like somebody <laughs> loves werewolves and then they happen to go see an old detective movie and they think ah yes the werewolf detective no one has thought of this before i is that really that common a trend is like werewolf detectives like a thing you see a well, lot of i mean not anymore and I definitely, I definitely saw it a few times. Wow. Oh, yeah. I legit did not expect that. I did not, I, I would not have put werewolf detective together, especially to the point where, like, oh, another werewolf detective. Go. Yeah, I definitely saw it. I definitely saw it more than once. I mean, I think 
in a way, Werewolf Detective is just kind of my catch-all for classic uh, supernatural being who is also a detective in the city at night. Mm. But yeah, I definitely saw oh, Werewolf. I'm sure you get a ton of vampire detectives too. Yeah. Like, I could see yeah. that because it's uh, nighttime. It's more. <laughs> yeah. You know, luckily vampires and werewolves that like they've cooled down to. And then there was one year, mm. maybe like five years ago now, where it seemed like I was reading a lot of time dilation stories yeah I, I don't know why it was just something i noticed after a while but as far as a uh, current trend uh so since the 2016 election you know i'm not putting any values on anything but uh we have uh, been getting a lot of uh, real downer stories um lots of horror dark fantasy dystopian fiction apocalypse post-apocalypse stuff Oh yeah, dystopian fiction is really oh, big yeah. right now. Yeah, huge. And even even the stories that we're getting that aren't straight horror, they are horror tinged, dark fantasy, dark science fiction, just a lot of stuff that's really down, stuff that is not upbeat. Uh, it's actually been a problem for Charlie and how he wants to compose issues. You know, he's he said mm. it to me because I, I think he said that we've gotten some reader complaints about you know everything being too bleak all the time i mean you know the, the the i mean the stuff that is publishable is, is often good i'm not saying that downer stories are, are bad you know a lot of the best stories right. are really down and hard-hitting but you know it's not all if you're reading an issue of the of of anything really or, or uh, right you want a variety a little bit or i mean i don't mind a book that's entirely like depression and sadness but i can see a lot of readers going like oh my god Please give me a happy ending once or twice somewhere in this. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, you know, it's just it's just not always fun to read downer stuff back to back to back. Uh, so right. I'd say that's the trend. Also, th this isn't really like magazine specific. It, it's just a feeling I have of like looking at the wider genre world. So short stories and maybe even books, short stories, maybe even movies. Uh, it seems like there's like a little boom going on in time travel fiction. Which, I mean, I don't know, maybe that fits in with the current political climate that a lot of people are feeling right now, too. Um, I was once in the audience at a time travel panel at Dragon Con, which was mm -hmm. a lot of fun. But one of the panelists, uh, I just remember him saying that time travel fiction is as old as regret. So, yeah, well, you know, with the way things are, I'm sure people, some people anyway, uh, but just, yeah, I, th I think time travel fits oh, yeah. in with the, the current dystopian. Yeah, not to mention just this cultural moment we have where we're really awash in nostalgia. Yeah. Like, hitting it so hard. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, nostalgia definitely fits in. I'm, stranger Things. Stranger Things. I mean, there's... Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's time travel in there. Not so much, but the whole series is all about, like, hey, remember the 80s? They were great. It's funny, I'm... I'm too young to really remember the 80s, but I, yeah. I mean, just too young. But I, I got to say, I love that show. But yeah, yeah. nostalgia. Oh, it is fun. It's, it's powerful. Yeah, and I, I love Glow. I totally oh, love Glow. Glow and how so just completely ridiculous it is with the hair and the everything. It's fantastic. But um, in terms of trends, bringing it back to trends, are there any that you've seen so much that you'll just reject them outright? Like, I know Strange Horizons has a list of stories we've seen too often 
and then horror stories we've seen too often, and I think the list includes kid's imaginary friend turns out to be real and evil and literally anything with zombies in it. <laughs> to the point where if they get one of those stories, they'll just say, no, nope, nope, sorry, nope. Yeah, I think uh, Neil Clark also has a list of story types that they're not prohibited, but apparently they'd be a hard sell for him. But mm. for, for us at FNSF, uh, the answer is no. We don't operate like that. Not in any official kind of way. Sometimes, like two years ago, we were we were talking about this one story that we had on submission. You know, like, it's, it's good. Is it good enough? Do we want to publish it? And it was, I forget if it was like a capital G ghost story or if it just had ghosts in it. But I, I said to Charlie, like, you know, like, this is good and all, but it seems that, like, in the past, you know, over the past six or seven issues, we've published, like, nine stories with ghosts in them, so, like, do we really need mm. this one? And I think we ended up rejecting it, but, yeah, yeah but we don't have any official prohibitions. You know, I, I do know that our uh, our prime first reader, who, who does a lot of reading for us, uh, she, uh, has a pet peeve uh, of stories that begin with the protagonist waking up. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, those are the worst. Yeah, but we, we never reject anything outright just by plot or trope because, you know, you never know when you'll get, you know, that one story that's, you know, it's such a great example of that trope or subgenre that you just have to have it right. or it makes you rethink that trope or subgenre. So, Right. Like, you might see a heartbreakingly amazing werewolf detective story you don't I know i mean i'm not opposed to them in principle <laughs> it, it, it was honestly it was always the way that the writers wrote that story you could tell that as they were writing it they were thinking Haha, what a great idea no one's ever thought of this i'm so original and here i am reading it thinking you know i've read like three of these this month wow i mean like maybe not quite that many but it was it was def. It was not yeah. as original. They were not as original as they thought they were being. So that that was my big pet peeve. But I mean, you know, if somebody huh. came up with a good werewolf detective story, then you know, good for them. Uh, yeah. But yeah, at FNSF, you know, we're trying to be both on the cutting edge, and we also want to cast as wide a net of of what we're willing to publish. That's always been sort of our editorial uh, imperative you know our, our fiction guidelines mm -hmm. they've always said and they, they still do that you know we have no formula for fiction uh i, th I think right. it's always been our great strength that you know we don't limit ourselves to a certain style or a certain subgenre. right right and and that is neat actually you do get a really wide variety of of stuff in every issue which is something i kind of like because i'm i tend do tend to focus on more like literary horror literary speculative and it is kind of nice to see this wide variety of like here's a hard science fiction story and here's a an adventure fantasy and and here's some other thing it's like oh okay because it's stuff that i i wouldn't normally read yeah and it is kind of nice to be able to see that yeah working at fnsf is really um it's really shaped how i read as well because when i'm reading short stories just on my own time i really need that sense of variety uh, I can't really read themed anthologies anymore because, mm. uh, you know, I'll be reading it like, okay, like a, a vampire anthology, right? 
the first story. Boy, that was a great mm-hmm. vampire story. Let me go on to the second one, so on and so on. Halfway through the book. Yeah. Okay, that was a great vampire story, too. What's the next story? Another vampire story? Yeah. Damn it. I'll never read another <laughs> vampire story, and I'm not finishing this book. I've I've noticed that, like, even some single author collections, by the end of the book, I'm starting... I just start to get tired of that author's voice, even hmm. even when the stories that they're writing are, you know, all about, you know, run the gamut from science fiction to fantasy to all these things. Like, I, I won't, I'm thinking of a specific author, but I, I won't say who, because it, it really doesn't matter. But by the, the time I got right. to the end of his collection, it, it was a very good collection, but I just got a little tired because I feel like I could... I could just I could hear his voice and it was like the same or similar voice that was running through all the stories and it was not something that mm. I had ever noticed before just reading his work in various magazines here and there like you know spaced out. Right. So yeah, I I think variety is very important at, at least for me it, it's something uh, you know it's just something I need. Right. Um, now I'm going to take a moment to talk about myself shamelessly because it's my podcast and no one can stop me. Um, (laughs) when I wrote my English name, I was very proud of myself because I thought it was a really original story. It's about an imitation human wandering around a foreign country. And then after it was published, a lot of people said, oh, that's kind of like Under the Skin, which I had heard of, but I hadn't seen it. So about a year after that, I went out and I watched the movie and I was mortified because it is very similar to the story I wrote beat for beat. And now I was all worried that people are just going to think that, oh, God, she's a plagiarist. She just ripped off Under the Skin. Um, then when I was working on All of Me, which is about a mermaid, I was real excited because I'm like, oh, no one else is doing like a big mermaid story right now. And midway through my rough draft, I started seeing ads for The Shape of Water, which is another story about a, a fish person who is being persecuted and a metaphor for being a social outcast and stuff. So even when you do try to be very original, sometimes it, it is not possible because, as we've mentioned before, human beings have been telling stories for a very long time, and there's a lot of media out there, and chances are someone has already told your story before. Everything's been done before. Given that, is it possible for a writer or artist to really be original? Like, what what makes something different? What makes something special or original? Well... I mean, what do you do you think you mean by truly original? I mean something that when I'm finished reading it, I go, "Wow, I I haven't seen that before." Okay, well then, yeah, I I think I think a writer can do that even today. Plots and settings they get rehashed or riffed on. I mean, you can think of all of you know J.R.R. Tolkien's imita- uh, Tolkien's imitators. That's stuff that isn't exactly original right. something that is new today the the silk punk subgenre that i, I think mm-hmm. it was i'm pretty i'm pretty sure it was popularized or maybe even coined by ken Liu uh, with, with his big uh fantasy trilogy that that he's in the middle of right now and now we're you know seeing more fantasy and science fiction that's either coming directly from asia or it's it's got a lot of uh, East Asian influences to it. So, you know, all that's new now, but 
you know, who knows? Maybe we'll live to see the day when people start talking about silk punk as a, a played out subgenre, you know, the same way right. like, oh, all this secondary world Tolkien-esque high fantasy. You know, you, you, you can never tell. I think that if you're concerned about being original as a writer, it's tough nowadays to do that in plot. You know, I think about like all those great Twilight Zone twists or... Um, Right. Frederick Brown short short stories from the from the middle of the last century he was um, he was kind of the O. Henry of science fiction you ever mm-hmm. uh, I've only actually read uh, one of his stories but uh, my father-in-law gave me a big uh, book of his from uh, Nesfa Press he was that writer who I forget if he wrote it or if it's attributed to him but you know that two sentence science fiction story you know the last man on earth uh, sat typing at his typewriter oh. in his room suddenly there was a knock at the door yeah you right. know like short shorts like that that depend on plot twists although i have watched a few episodes of black mirror and they do a a pretty pretty great job of crazy plot twists from what i can tell so it is possible hmm. but I, I think i mentioned this before about character uh, i think that if you're a writer who's concerned about being original, then what you do is you focus on your characters and you focus on the, the little details. Science fiction and fantasy, like as defined genres, have been around for you know a long time, at least a hundred years. I mean, you could go back to you know Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You can probably go back further. Spencer's The Fairy Queen, what have you. So I think until or unless our society morphs into something that's truly unrecognizable where, you know, you could write, you could just write about your regular day and it's totally new. And, you know, it's like nothing that has ever happened before in history, then, you know, it's going to be tough. So it's it's depth of character that and and all the little details in the story that make a person's work stand out. You know, most of the time you're, you're, you're going to be original on the margins. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as an example of something that was original, and it was incredibly groundbreaking. A lot of people refer to it as the first sci-fi story. But in a way, I mean, that's not 100% whole cloth, oh my God, no one's ever seen it before. Like, it's a really big update or, or a new version, I guess you could say, of these traditional stories about golems. Oh, I and thought about that. in a way, yeah. right? I mean, there's that whole really long tradition of this this idea of uh, in in the Kabbalah, like a golem, some sort of creature made out of earth that's brought to life through magical means and turns out to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there are stories like that of people, of mortal human beings creating life and it not going super great because we're tampering in God's domain. And that's kind of a no, no. I mean, the thing I guess that made Mary Shelley special was that she's doing this in a scientific way instead of in a, in a magic way. Yeah. And also Frankenstein talks instead of just sort of groaning. And... <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's tough, right? Cause even if you, I mean, you can go all the way back to Greek mythology and, and they had stories of, you know, of, of people going down into Hades to bring people back to life, uh, the Orpheus right. myth. So it, I think it's uh, it's a hang up for for people for writers to to worry too much about 
you know, trying to be original for originality's sake. Did you ever watch Doug when you were a kid? Yes, Remember I that did. episode <laughs> where uh, there's like a TV show and somebody on the TV show wears the exact outfit that he always wears with the shorts and the, the green vest. So then everybody at school starts wearing it. I think I vaguely remember. Yeah, it. yeah. So he gets really upset and he like, because, you know, that was his original thing. And like he goes out and tries to be original. So he like puts on this weird mishmash of clothes and you know then the next week <laughs> the guy's wearing that exact same mishmash of clothes on tv so you know you just have to <laughs> be yourself as a writer i was in i was in the audience at a, uh, a writer's panel at FlameCon a few years ago and um justina ireland said i remember her saying something to the effect of if you're a writer of color because that's what she was specifically talking about. But like, if you're a writer of color, you don't mm. have to worry about is your story original because so few of us have gotten to, you know, tell our own stories that just the fact that you're writing it makes it original. I mean, I I I, I do agree that you know if, if you've got some kind of different perspective as a writer, you know, whether it's like race, gender, class, neurotypicality, or you know, and anything else that I'm forgetting about, you know, bringing that perspective mm. to the story you're trying to tell, definitely, it definitely adds an element of originality. You know, it's it's something new. Oh, yeah. You know, as an editor, that that's something we noticed at the office, like, you know, oh, an interesting new wrinkle. Uh, so it, you know, that, that definitely helps. Right. Another way, you know, you can be original, I think anyway, uh, is to run against a, uh, a well-established trope there was a story that we ran in the march april 18 issue uh it's called uh, the harmonic resonance of ejiro anabori by wool talabi he's mm. african if if memory serves I, I think he's from nigeria but this uh, it's an interesting story just in how it ends it's about these uh two kids uh, there's some big conflict with like a um, an oil company that sort of runs the town, and they come in contact with this uh, alien consciousness, and the the positive resolution is achieved at the end of the story's conflict by uh, literally uniting the people into a, a new meta consciousness. Like these these two kids who come in contact wow. with the aliens, yeah, like they become connected. The the two kids. And then they just like they run around touching everybody who's at this like big riot. And then all of those people, they all become connected with each other and, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, what what was really interesting to me when I when I read it the first time and I'm glad that we that we published it. You know, there's such a long tradition in SF of, you know, all this this rugged individualism and, you know, yeah. government and the man is bad and conformity's bad and i'm gonna go off and do my own thing i mean like not even in in sf too i feel like a lot of uh mainstream literature in the yeah. 20th century was like that too western culture especially is very like hyper individualistic right yeah yeah and this story flies in the face of it like you know it says that no the way to create a better society that's free and peaceful and and free of conflict is for us all to unite literally to, to to unite that you know individualism oh, that's really yeah interesting. that individualism is the source of evil in the world it keeps us from like you know understanding 
one another. Yeah, because that's almost like the the happy version of like the Borg. Well, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. It's yeah. the story of the Borg as written by the Borg, who are like, yeah, assimilated. Yeah, rules. exactly. You, just, you get to see a billion from a billion different pairs of eyes at the same time. This rocks, dude. It's yeah, awesome. I know. Yeah, I know. it's the story of the Borg is good, and hey, who wouldn't want to be assimilated, <laughs> man? I mean, look at all this great stuff. It's funny. Yeah, you get you get tubes. You get tubes. You don't die. Like that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know it. It's funny, right? Because I, I actually, I actually kind of disagree, like on a on a deep level with what Talabi seems to be saying in his story. I mean, you know, it, I, I find it faintly horrifying, but it, it's still a it's still a yeah. neat concept and a good story. And you know, it it turns like you know a century of traditional SF you know, right on its head. So, you know, running against tropes is a, is a great way to stand out and also to just produce good art, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of breathing new life into an old trope, uh, let's get back to talking about shooting iron. Oh, I think right, that's a yeah. fantastic example of a story that takes these really old overused tropes and does something really new with it. Yeah, in... Uh... Cassandra Kahn and, and Jonathan Howard, uh, I think they've they've said publicly on, on the internet or in various interviews that the the genesis of the story was, I guess, all those old 70s kung fu movies where, you know, like some white guy from America right. goes to, to Asia and he, he learns how to kung fu better than, you know, all the people <laughs> there who like that's their martial art and it's what they've been doing for a long time even the new batman batman begins oh, like yeah. he kind of learns to be batman at a monastery in some vaguely asian place i think yeah uh, well i mean batman kind of. I, I like batman so yeah but but yeah you're right yeah he does but it is a trope that is yeah. used a lot like a white person goes to some place ethnic and learns how to do magic fighting and and then goes back to america and he kicks everybody's ass and he's super yeah, you cool. know with, with all these eastern martial arts so they thought like well what if we wrote a story where you know somebody asian learns how to do a western martial art way better than you know any of the western people so it, it's about uh, i i forget precisely what country she comes from in the story but you know it's it's about this this asian girl who learns how to be a better gunslinger that you know she's the fastest draw in the west it's a cool right. story and it's got like magic guns and you know right. ancient evils it, it it's it's a lot of fun a lot of blood and guts it's a, it's a good fun story that character i think that character's got legs they could they could come back to that now we've talked about how sort of remixing old tropes maybe changing perspective changing setting can kind of breathe new life into an old story is there a risk of getting kind of gimmicky like there's a big cliche about how college theater productions of shakespeare they never just adapt it straight up they always put it like oh let's put macbeth but it's in a modern corporation or let's do king lear but it's about the president or what if we did hamlet but we set it in a 1980s jazzercise studio and so on and so forth is there like a risk of getting super gimmicky and how do you know when you're when you're just using a, a cheap gimmick that's not going to impress anybody i'm not exactly sure about that i guess it's just a matter of trying to read widely so that mm -hmm. you know getting back to werewolf detectives that you know you don't mistakenly think that 
you know, the, the thing that you've come up with is so new when maybe it isn't. Uh, I think it also kind of just depends on what kind of story you want to tell. You know, if, if you can make something entertaining, it can be generic. Uh, I, I guess it just depends mm. on what you want to write, what kind of career you want to try and have. I mean, Hamlet in a jazzercise studio might be funny. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Um, I think you did kind of get at something earlier when you were talking about werewolf detectives, that the issue for you was writers were writing it like, holy shit, you've never seen this before. Am I blowing your mind? <laughs> yeah. Like, maybe just write assuming that you're not going to blow anyone's mind with your original premise. Maybe just focus instead of like whoa i got this totally crazy new idea that no one's seen anymore assume someone's probably done it already but just focus on like okay i'm gonna write a really fucking good werewolf detective story i'm gonna really use this premise deeply and get at the heart of what does it mean to be a werewolf detective and and by extension what does it mean about the human condition yeah yeah i i guess yeah i guess uh, with with what you're saying, I mean, you can do one of two things to, I guess, keep it from being uh, gimmicky. You know, one, you can be funny, and then it won't matter. Or, or two, with what you were saying, you know, write with a, a sense of sincerity. You know, just like yeah. playing, yeah. just playing straight with everything, and you know, don't get wrapped up in in how how great you are, because, like you said, somebody's probably thought about it. Already. Yeah, over, over the course of the entirety of human history and culture, <laughs> someone's probably done a werewolf detective before. Probably. Probably in, in like, some Sumerian tablet, someone <laughs> cuneiformed a werewolf detective story or some kind of equivalent. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, it's easy to say writers should try to be original and strive for originality, but it's... It's very easier said than done. <laughs> do you think there's a way to sort of learn how to do that? A way to train yourself to avoid sort of derivative work and, and, and cliche work? Yeah. Yeah, just uh, try and read more. Try and try and get out there and live. There was a, a movie. Oh, it was Midnight in Paris, uh, that Woody Allen movie with uh, Owen Wilson in it, where he like, spoiler alert, he sort of magically goes back in time at night, you know, to Paris in the in the twenties, and he meets Ernest Hemingway. And at one point, Hemingway says to him, "You know, you're a writer, make an observation." So, you know, just try and get out there, see what life is like, make observations. You know, a general trope, something like the hero's journey, or you know, eat, pray, love. Middle-aged woman learns to live her best life. You know that that's always kind of going to be around, mm -hmm. but. The context of our society, it, it, it's always changing at some point. So, you know, maybe Eat, Pray, Love in 2119 is a much different story than Eat, Pray, Love in 2019. Same thing with the mm. hero's journey, you know. You can always, I, I like to read a lot of, of old science fiction. And, I mean, other things aside, one of the interesting things about it is even if it's, you know, something that's set in the year 2500, you know, obviously they, they bring a lot of 
what life was like in, you know, say like 1960 or 1970. So, you know, just reading it for that and seeing like, wow, things sure were different back then. Like, you know, that makes for an interesting reading experience. And, you know, like I I said before, you know, if you're well read in the genre, you can be original by playing with subverting and, and answering established tropes and and that'll give you something to write about. Uh, you ever read? Have you ever read "We Who Are About To" by Joanna Russ? I don't think. Oh, that's so. a great little novella. Um, I think Wesleyan University Press has uh, an edition of it. Great story. Uh, I, w- I won't go into the story except just to say that it's really answering and providing a, a critique of. Uh, you know, all of those old stories from the 50s and the 60s where, you know, we, we've crash landed on this barren planet. We must rebuild civilization. And then they get down to doing it. And this story by Joanna Russ, we who are about to just looks at that and says, like, that is insane. So, you know, that it, it hmm. it's a it's a great story. So, you know, that's one example of how you can run against tropes or uh Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea books I've read like that was uh, oh, yeah. you know her writing a response to um, you know a lot of Eurocentric fantasy at the time it's set in a big archipelago instead of some blobby continent and the people are copper skinned instead of white in fact the the general villains the the, the car gang right. people they're white and blonde I would also say that uh, reading inside the genre is also helpful to uh, writers of uh, mimetic fiction. If, uh, if you have any mm. listeners who write straight literature, uh, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of books in the bookstore that are published by like big literary imprints like Knopf or, or Crown, for example. And the book is mostly literature, but maybe it's got a vampire in it or there's a little bit of time travel. And the book jacket acts like this writer hey nobody's ever put a vampire in a book before wow this is so new yeah yeah yeah. when 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 literary snobs when literary fiction snobs do a little bit of a dabbling in speculative you find they just hit all of the cliches immediately all the cliches slumming i'm i'm sure they would call it but yes they hit all the cliches that they don't even know are cliches because they don't read because they don't don't read read it but it's kind of like when a restaurant like gentrifies street food, <laughs> like when they're like, we're making this expensive truffle hot dog or whatever. And you're like, okay, but it's a hot dog. You just put a truffle on it. You just, and you're charging $70 for it. What are you doing? Right, yeah. Like I've seen that, like a serious literary fiction person who's like, you know what? I'm going to, oh, I'm going to dabble in, in, won't it be fun? I'll do a horror story. I'm going to write a a, a ghost novel and it's about the fucking couple with the young kid moving into a suspiciously cheap house yeah and the walls do the go away thing and it's like really yeah but i really i guess what i'm getting at is you know well hey it sells (laughs) because we see those books all the time and it's new it must be new to the writer it's probably new to the staff at that literary imprint and it's definitely new to the crowd of people who only read quote-unquote serious fiction instead of genre fiction so to all you mimetic fiction people out there you might as well read some george r R. martin or you know some i don't know conan the barbarian ursula Le Guin. yeah 
uh, N.K. Jemison and uh, pick up a couple of ideas that you can use to sell your uh, straight lit book because then it'll be edgy because there'll be a little bit of genre <laughs> in it. How exciting. Yeah, gosh, it, it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit when I see that because you, you do see it yeah. a bit. and oh, it, Yeah, every now um, and then. I have a lot of feelings about that. I'm not even sure where to begin. <laughs> yeah. It, but it just does strike me as that sort of, I know you, I used the word before, but gentrification when like a, when like a rich affluent, especially like predominantly white restaurant owner finds out about some food that tends to be used in like cheap, low income ethnic cooking and kind of acts like, oh, look at us. We're making this. We made pork cracklins or, oh, we, we made, it's a big thing in the Northeast to do like really shitty soul food. <laughs> And be like, oh, look, we made this upscale shrimp and grits. It's like, all right, um, you're charging like $20 for this thing that was invented by people who had very limited resources and were trying to nourish themselves based on like what was available. And you're acting like you're incredibly brave for making something that you can get for like super cheap someplace else. And there's something about it that leaves like a weird feeling with me that I'm, I'm not sure I can totally articulated but and they end up doing it rather poorly and in a in in kind of a bland way (laughs) yeah yeah which isn't to say that like literary writers should never use genre tropes because i am totally in favor of like more of a blending between the genre camp and the literary camp i think it could be good for all of us um and and that this distinction is a little bit artificial like Kafka to me is a genre right, writer yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's a fantasy writer. I mean, he he doesn't f- follow adventure fantasy tropes, but the Metamorphosis is a fantasy story. Yeah, and uh, beloved, uh, t- technically a ghost story. Oh Great yeah, book. and a startlingly original right. one too. And it, it's not like oh we moved into a house that's haunted. Like it uses the this tradition of ghost stories and does something really really amazing with it um kurt vonnegut too i think he remixes a lot of like golden age sci-fi into some very very amazing startling uh work but it's funny when when someone like who uses genre or writes in genre is very very good the literary camp kind of claims them and it's like no it's not ghost story yeah (laughs) it's serious literature like no it's both and i I think Ursula Le Guin was kind of great in that she rejected that. People would say, like, oh, that's not a sci-fi story. Like She'd say, yeah, it is. Yeah, the, it was very good <laughs> of her to, to do that. Other people might have just been like, oh, thank God, I'm one of you now. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think Kurt Vonnegut felt uncomfortable about being referred to as a sci-fi writer because a lot of people looked down well, on Well, I that. mean, it, it, it definitely hurt sales. Uh, the science fiction writers from the 50s and the 60s and... Even into the 70s, you know, they uh, it, it was kind of a literary ghetto. They didn't get much uh, mainstream attention except for, mm-hmm. you know, three or maybe four guys. You know, Heinlein, Bradbury was, was a big one, Asimov, uh, right. Arthur Clarke. But, you know, I don't, I don't mind that those literary books that rip off a genre element exist because science fiction isn't quite for everybody and... They must sell because yeah. they keep uh, they keep doing them. I just keep I always think like, oh, if you thought that was a time travel book, like, oh my god, there, are, look at all these other books. I want to I want to show you now. Like those are the real time travel books, right? I think you could also yeah for for writers who who 
write in the genre, reading outside of the genre, very important. I've read that Gene Wolfe was a very well-read person outside of of, uh, strict genre parameters. I mean, he was very well-read within genre as well, but uh, he read a lot of Greek mythology. Oh, you absolutely have to go outside of whatever genre you're writing in. It just gives you more breadth to, to draw on your own work. And I mean, if you if you're writing adventure fantasy and all you read is Tolkien, then everything you write is just going to look like a really crappy, watered down Tolkien. Yeah, I know somebody who who writes fantasy, and it uh, it just reads to me like if you just took all your all your big fat fantasy books from when you were a kid and a teenager, and you put them in a blender. And then you just poured that back out onto the page, and that's what it reads like, because I think that's all that my friend really reads. Mm. So, so yeah, I try and read widely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a thing we, we definitely talk about on this podcast a lot. Like, please read a lot of stuff. Please don't just read YA. Don't just read Harry Potter and then go, I'm going to write after reading nothing but Harry Potter. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Oh, God. You know, it's funny. I wonder how many... I sometimes wonder how many young people still read Harry Potter. Yeah. Like my... Um, I have a, a work colleague who has a, uh, a daughter who just turned 13, and I, I don't think she's read it. And I had already read, like, huh. three of them by that point. It seems to me that the only people who I ever hear talking about Harry Potter are all in their mid-20s to late-30s. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe it maybe it won't age quite as well as we all think it will. Yeah. There's no or way maybe to know. kids will grow up with a different thing that whatever the next big thing's gonna be, that's what that's what they'll be into. Yeah, or maybe they won't even read anymore. But, well, that's, that's just me being an old man. <laughs> yeah. Kids these days! Yeah, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, um... Given our present media landscape of reboots, long-awaited sequels, prequels, 80s, 90s nostalgia, do you think there's an incentive financially not to be original? Like, we're getting the second Watchmen adaptation in 10 years. We reboot Spider-Man once a week. (laughs) Studios are funding and promoting stuff that we've already seen before a million times because it's safe in terms of profit. People are going to spend money on something that feels like, oh, I like Spider-Man, that's Spider-Man. I'll spend my money on Spider-Man because I have limited money right now and I don't want to take a gamble on something that might suck. Um, And audiences don't really seem to mind so much. So this is a question I ask myself, why bother? (laughs) (laughs) Why does it matter? Should I just give up and write (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man? Why do I try so hard to do something new? Uh, I mean, you could try and go into comic books. Uh, Rachel Pollock did uh, what I have heard is a, a very well-respected stint on uh, Doom Patrol back in the 90s. And uh, hmm. I, f- I feel like there are some more recent genre writers who've just been doing comic book work that I I can't remember what it is now. But that's definitely a thing. But I, I don't really know much about comics. And I, I do think there's an incentive not to be original. You know, what you, what you were saying about profit from the, from the studio's point of view 
audiences just aren't as captive as they used to be. I mean, you know, you, you think of the movies, mm-hmm. prequels and reboots and sequels are a safe bet because people don't go to the movies like they used to because, you know, we don't have to anymore. We've, right. we've got our computers, we've got our smartphones. There's just a lot more choice out there to waste your time on. And I don't really read self-published books, but I have heard that the world of online self-publishing in science fiction is really like middle of the road, center of the field stuff. Like, Mm. it's not really all that groundbreaking. And I don't know why that is. I guess that's just what sells, so people do it. Well, there was a werewolf romance uh, series that was very popular on Amazon Kindle for a while. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. It wasn't werewolf. It was Bigfoot. It was a series of erotic Bigfoot romance novels. That made the author a very rich woman. Yeah, I've also heard that, like, there are these two women who write, like, dinosaur porn. Right. Speaking of self-publishing and that whole thing, this might be a controversial subject, but let's talk about a type of writing that is proudly and cheerfully derivative. Fan fiction. Do you think it encourages originality by getting people to do new things with pre-existing characters, pre-existing properties? Or do you think maybe it could stifle originality by letting writers just stick to stuff that's already familiar? Personally, I'm not a fan. I don't I don't read fan fiction. But, you know, there is that representation aspect to it. You know, I'm thinking of, like, all that slash fiction between uh, Kirk and Spock, right? Right. So that, that filled a need, I, I guess, back in, back in the days when it was tough to find... Um, gay and lesbian representation and and maybe uh, still today Mm. you know there there are all kinds of representation issues that that fan fiction can fill you know i i know that uh, people like it for that reason but uh, i think naomi novik is a a pretty big proponent of fan fiction you know she has her uh temeraire series of napoleonic uh fantasy with dragons and she wrote uprooted and spinning silver i'm pretty sure that she started out writing fan fiction you know it it can give you the space and the the tools to to work on your craft as a writer without having to make up characters and settings from whole cloth i i guess i choose to think of it as apprentice work to do it if you want to think of it that way but you know of of course people do it for for fun and just because they they like it Mm. i guess something that's kind of in that vein uh, that I that I'm reminded of. I've I've heard that Robert Silverberg, when he was starting out as a writer, he used to make money by uh, writing porn novels when he was in his early. I've heard career. a lot of writers have done that, yeah. including some like really serious literary giants of the mid 20th century. It's just that people pay for that, so yeah, you know, everybody's got to eat, and if that's what they want you know that that's that's pay that hey that's paying work yep yeah but so apparently silverberg had like several stock sex scenes that he would just insert into the narrative at the appropriate moments and he would (laughs) (laughs) and he would use the rest of the book as space for him to you know work things out that he was you know working on as a writer uh, plot structure or how to do good dialogue you know like that's Part of how he, uh, part of how he got better as a writer. So I've, uh, so I've heard. Oh, that's kind of fun. That's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Good for him, man. Right, because you know, if it's a porn novel, you know, what are you really reading it for? So you know, right. 
You're going to skim that other stuff, yes. probably. You're not super concerned about, oh, what's the central conflict of this story? Yes, P pay no attention to me while I work on expressing theme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, if you think about fan fiction in, like, a more professional way, at least in terms of the money, I mean, Star Trek and Star Wars books... And all those Spider-Man books and X-Men novels from the 90s when I was a kid, uh, you know, the D&D &D books that you could you could buy from Wizards of the Coast when 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 they still had stores in the mall. Uh, you know, people make careers out of this. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Fonda McIntyre, who uh, she won a, a Nebula and a Hugo for Dream Snake. She she wrote a Star Wars book. It was called The Crystal Star. That was actually hmm. the first real book that I ever read. I was, I was like nine. You know, lots of uh, yeah, lots of people. It, it's definitely a thing you can do playing with you know other people's uh, characters, other people's uh, uh, properties. Like I said, it's uh, not not really my thing, but right. you know, it, it 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 is what it is. Definitely something you can uh, use as a writer if, if you choose to. Hmm. All right. Now uh, let's talk about something that you brought up: market forces. A lot of readers think that writing kind of comes down from the muse, but trends, and not just in terms of plot tropes, but in stuff like, are trilogies in right now? Is, is there a market for novellas right now? A lot of these things can really affect a writer's career, and I imagine that that influences what you put out there. Would you like to talk a little bit about this and how, how just how much market forces just shape what people create? Yeah, I... Um... This is something that I've been thinking about just on and off for the past couple of years. I um, I feel like most writers, other than what what you were saying of you know oh it's trilogies everything's got to be a trilogy right. But other than that, I feel like writers don't really think about or at least talk about publicly you know how market forces beyond the genre and even beyond the publishing industry can, you know, impact your career. You know, most people, I feel like people think that, you, you know, you, you look at Lord of the Rings and you look at Philip K. Dick's novels and, or, or Dune, uh, Dune, Lord of the Rings and Dune, you know, these, mm. these authors are all dead. These books were written a long time ago, but they're still there in the bookstore because they're great and lots of people like them. So, you know, I feel like the default is that the default thinking is that, you know, if if you're a great writer, you know, if you can write a great book, you'll be around for a long time. You'll have a great career and your work will last. But I feel like there's a lot more to it than that. Oh, yeah. Like I always I always see not so much anymore, but I feel like over the past 10 years, I saw a lot of writers like newer up and coming writers sort of like complaining about more established writers or you know writers who were dead and you know complaining about like you know all their books are still on the shelf at barnes and noble and you know they're they're, they're crowding us all out there's no room for us to come along you know oh those 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 terrible old writers it's all their fault and I just remember one day I went to the Barnes and Noble in Clifton, New Jersey, which somebody that I know who who works at like Barnes and Noble corporate mentioned one time that that store is the the flagship store for New Jersey. I'm I am from New Jersey. Please don't uh, no nobody come get me. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I was in there 
and I went over to the science fiction section, and I was just kind of looking around, and I just kind of realized, like, I looked at the science fiction section, and then I looked at the general lit section, and the general lit section was, like, three or four times bigger than the SF section, and the mystery section was just as big as the general fiction section, and then right next to the science fiction section was the graphic novel and manga section, which was just as big as the adult SF section, and there wasn't even there wasn't even a a manga and graphic novel section that that I can recall anyway from when I was a kid. So you know, right. going back like twenty years, and that 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 doesn't even say anything about the dedicated YA section that most stores have, which is also huge. So I feel like a lot of times writers complain about other writers, but you know, just look around at the bookstore like the whole genre that you're writing in is being squeezed by these other bigger forces that you know we have no control over and of i have to imagine that barnes and noble is you know pretty sensitive to you know what sells and what doesn't sell so obviously people must want ya and graphic novels and mysteries so I, I just kind of feel like to say, like, you know, oh, this author, that author, this person from another time period is, like, killing my career. Like, it, I feel like it has very little yeah. to, to do with them. You know, there's only... I just feel these things impact the, uh, the, the context of how writers are trying to have their careers. I've got another example. So if you want to think about Philip K. Dick, right? Right. Everybody likes to talk about how Philip K. Dick is one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time. You know, a lot of his books are still in print on the shelf, and on the shelf he's known. And, like, you know, I, I do like the work of his. I'm not, I'm not saying that he isn't great. I'm just saying that, like, people think that that's just because of the work itself. Hmm. But this is something, again, I, I wish this was my own idea, but Gordon told me this once. He said one time, I always remembered this, if you went back in a in a time machine to like the 1971 Worldcon and you went to the, the Hugo presentation, you know, there in the banquet room, you ran in and you yelled out to the crowd, people, people, I've come from the future to tell you all that in the year 2019, John Brunner and Brian Aldiss have been forgotten by the science fiction public. And the greatest SF writer is generally thought to be Philip K. Dick. Well, you know, they would have hmm. laughed you out of the room. Because in the early 70s, John Brunner and Brian Aldiss were writing respected literary experimental SF books. And they were winning awards for it. And yeah, Philip K. Dick won the Hugo for The Man in the High Castle back in, like, I think 1963. But he was kind of this weird nut who took speed so that he could write books faster so that he could get more money to fund his speed addiction. You know, he was, <laughs> he was, uh, he was kind of, he was this weird guy. All pretty much all of his books came out as paperback originals. So, you know, back in those days, books didn't really stay on the shelf that long. Distribution was kind of a problem. So, Mm. All of his books just kind of came and went, and you know he was he was just this weird, cranky guy, right? But you know why <laughs> don't we remember Aldous and Brunner the same way that we remember Dick? And you know, and like there are plenty of people in 
in the field who, who remember all this and, and Bruno, I just mean in like, I guess in like a larger societal level. Right. Like if you ask an average person who is Philip K. Dick, they might know. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of genre people. But like, I, I honestly don't recognize either of those names. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Uh, John Brunner, he won the Hugo in, I want to say 1969 for a book called Stand on Zanzibar, which I own, but I haven't read yet. I think like his thing with some of his books like that one and um, maybe The Jagged Orbit and The Sheep Look Up. He was kind of doing like John Dos Passos, but in science Hmm. fiction. Now I I, I wish I now I wish I had read John Dos Passos. Uh, I haven't, so I couldn't really tell you exactly what that is but like that's what i've heard and, and read like that, that was kind of the thing for that for those books that he was working on i do hope that people who know more about this don't come for me to to kill me because right. as a personal pet peeve of mine is somebody talking yeah. in public about something that they aren't an expert on i do apologize oh, but you're a fake geek yeah i know right but <laughs> but anyway like the the reason that Philip K. Dick is remembered as well as he is and his books are still in print is because his books translate well to being adapted into movies. Like, you know, think about mm. a lot of Philip K. Dick books and stories, or, or at least think about the movies that have been adapted from oh, his yeah. books. You know, they're always about everyman characters who are just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. You know, right. that's the whole plot of Total Recall. I'm just trying right. to figure out what's going on. I've got to get to Mars. <laughs> or, uh, or you know, uh, the Adjustment Bureau from uh, back around like 2011. It was about a guy who mm. something weird happens and he spends the whole rest of the movie trying to figure out what's going on. Like, you know, these kinds of stories make great. They make great movies. It's It's easy to adapt. And I don't think that anyone is ever going to make a movie out of Stand on Zanzibar or Brian Aldiss's Helicona Spring, which, mm. like, he, he, it's this trilogy of books that he wrote, Helicona Spring, Helicona Summer, Helicona Winter, and they're, like, these huge, thick books that... I haven't read them, but they're about... It's like a, a, a planet whose weather uh the the climate shifts like over thousands of years like it's one of those like really big time scale kind of books so i imagine pretty hard to adapt right but so anyway the adaptability of philip k dick's books like i don't think many people really think about that like why is that a reason why he's remembered but that's Mm. that's a big reason yeah yeah yeah. or why hasn't Ursula Le Guin been adapted that much. I mean, yeah. Part I think part of that might be just some of the political content of her work. Yeah, I imagine. Although I know they tried to do an Earthsea series, but yeah, I, I don't, don't know. I don't know too much about that. I mean, we might see more of that. Well, actually, I heard that we're supposed to be getting an Earthsea adaptation that you know might actually do her work. Uh, some justice. Uh, I forget where I heard that, but I have a a feeling that's true. Right. Yeah. 
Like, I, I seem to recall that someone tried to do uh, an adaptation of it, but the cast was overwhelmingly white, and she got really mad. Oh, huh. yeah, well, that, that that would be something to get mad about for Earth's sake. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, some novels are super hard to adapt. Like, I know they did adapt Dune. Yeah, a couple but of times. audiences, I mean, Dune, as directed by David Lynch, audiences were not ready for that. Audiences <laughs> were just... They they couldn't. It was too much, which I kind of respect doing. Like, let's take this totally bonkers novel and have the most bonkers director do it. <laughs> yeah, or um, well, <laughs> I think they adapted it again in the two thousands on sci-fi. Right, and I think they're gonna try and do it again. Like, you guys, yeah, how I many times that. are how many fiascos are you gonna make? I mean, I'm all here for it. If they do something completely bonkers again, I will be very excited. Yeah, but I think, honestly, the worst idea would be, like, to try and play it safe and make something normal and easy to understand. Because, like, man, that's not Dune. Yeah. It's not Dune if you fully understand what's happening ever. <laughs> if you're not looking at it the whole time going, what the fuck? Then it's not truly a Dune experience, I think. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, they're, they're, they're just all these all these different forces that can have an impact on your on your career that have very little to do with i mean even if it relates somewhat to the work it that have very little to do with the the quality of the work like how you said with trilogies i was reading a um a, a forward to a uh, a book of um science fiction author profiles by charles platt and he was talking in the forward i i, I don't know how accurate exactly that his his reading of it is but i mean he, he was there at the time on the scene and one of the things that he said was that after star wars became a big hit and around the same time like uh the lord of the rings really took off so you know all of this anti-science space fantasy and big fat heroic fantasy and trilogies became a uh a big deal in the 80s and he said that there were a lot of great science fiction writers who had pretty you know for the time pretty good careers in the 70s who just couldn't really manage to make the shift from writing well thought out i guess you could say rigorous standalone science fiction novels to you know writing epic fantasy series or, or things like that and you know as a result their careers suffered or they uh they ended all together like uh bob silverberg again i'm, I'm bringing it up but uh, i think it, it's known it was known at the time that uh his big return to to writing in the 80s uh his magipore books like w within the industry like i i, th I think anyway it, it's tough to talk about because it's, it's not like i was there but I've heard that like right. people knew that it was it was like kind of a cash grab because mm. I mean I, I think they were I think they were they were pretty good books I mean you know he's Bob Silverberg but it, it was definitely a change from what he had written you know he had that great ten year period from like sixty five to seventy five where where he was writing you know some of the best and uh, well respected science fiction of the day and you know they were like slim one-shot novels that you know dealt with all these heady concepts and i think magipore is uh, it's like a it's a secondary world set on another planet with kind of like a semi-medieval setting which isn't to say i mean 
not in the same way that like Game of Thrones is semi-medieval. But so you know, he made the switch, and uh, a lot of other, uh, I guess, a lot of other writers couldn't. I just never really thought about it that way before. Hmm. Uh, you know, I I feel like you never people don't really think too often about like. You know, why did one writer succeed? Why did another writer stop writing? Who managed to hang around for decades? There's just a lot more that goes into it besides the work. Absolutely. And and so much of it is kind of chaotic and unpredictable and Yeah, yeah. And some of it and sometimes it's inexplicable. Like why a lot of times you'll find movies that weren't popular at the time but became huge cult hits and movies that were popular at the time but like no one remembers like Everybody, like, I believe Fight Club wasn't popular at the time, but it became this huge cultural institution. And meanwhile, no one who saw Avatar even remembers it. I know, right? And it was... Like, it made a zillion dollars. Yeah. Millions of people saw it. But if you ask anyone to describe what happens, they'll say, uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, every time I'm reminded of Avatar, I go, oh, yeah, I remember that. That happened. Yeah, you can just that you can never huge tell. zillion dollar thing happened. I just it never enters my mind usually unprompted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just never tell. But I, I, yeah, I guess that was all. I, I, I think that was all I had to say about about market forces. Right. right. It it's strange, and I'm wondering like, is it worth it for a writer to try to consider that while writing? I mean, financially or creatively, or like, do you stick to your guns? Do you risk losing your career? Do you risk getting kind of ossified? Like a lot of older writers who don't change, that's not always great, you know? Creatively, you end up just becoming a fossil in some ways if you don't change at all. So, I mean, how do you make that decision as a writer? Do you, do you just keep doing the same thing? Do you try to chase the way the culture changes? Or do you just sort of let things happen organically? I think that most writers, you know, whether they realize it or not, try to write for what the um, what the economic realities are of the market. Like going back to trilogies again, I'm sure, you know, maybe there are a lot of writers out there who, you know, maybe they would have let that book be a standalone book without padding it out into a trilogy. But that's what will sell. So that's what you do. Or. Nowadays, with Tor.com, you know, they seem to have a, a fairly good thing going with uh, their novella program that they're publishing. And uh, Right, novellas were kind of dead for a while. Yeah. Almost. Well, I mean, the magazines always publish them, but, I, you know, just as standalone things, yeah, it's not like you could really go to the bookstore and find a book that was 120 pages long i mean you know where was that going to be but you know now uh yeah. there's a lot more than they than they used to be and i'm sure there are a lot of short story writers who write science fiction in the field and you know now tour.com is available for novellas and actually um recently at the magazine you know we get review books in from publishers so we log them in and, and we send them out to our book reviewers and i'm um, we're starting to see drips and drabs here and there i've seen a couple of uh standalone novellas come in that were published by harper voyager so you know i, I guess the other uh genre publishers are starting to look at what uh, what tor is doing with novellas and they're thinking well you know hey if they're doing it maybe we can too so mm -hmm. i think 
you know, there must be a lot of short story writers out there who, you know, maybe 10 years ago, like they'd try and write a novella if they felt like the story they were trying to tell was a novella. And, you know, well, maybe I can sell it to FNSF or Analog or Asimov's, right? But now that Tor.com is here, maybe they're thinking like, I'm going to write a novella. Or maybe now you're thinking like, well, you know, this story is like 12,000 words. I could probably expand it up to like, 30,000 or so, and maybe I can get it published by Tor.com as a novella. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, writers aren't stupid. Uh, it just depends on what it, whatever the, the market is asking for. And I think most people try to write for that market. I mean, whether they're really thinking about what they're doing or not. Yeah, yeah. Consciously or unconsciously, you kind of get aware of stuff. And I'm sure that if if you are writing for a living too, and it and it's not just an extra side gig or something, that is a thing you kind of have to be conscious of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can think about you know the the singular vision of you know somebody like J.R.R. Tolkien, but you know let's not forget those books were his hobby. He was an Oxford professor. He didn't right. he didn't have to worry about how many years he was taking to to write Lord of the Rings. Right. I mean, and and a yeah. lot of the greats, a lot of the writers that we think of as these greats, absolutely made ways to maximize the amount of money they made. Like I believe Alexandre Dumas was paid by the line. <laughs> so in The Count of Monte Cristo, there's a character who can only communicate by blinking yes or no. Uh. And it's a way to just extend these chapters into way 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 more lines than they normally would be. So he just found a way to just fill his wallet by having this guy blink <laughs> for like chapters and chapters. It's brilliant. Yeah. Like yeah. once you find that out, you realize exactly why the character exists. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> you son of a bitch. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or even something like, I've heard that novels started getting fatter in the the in the 90s because publishers like the the they finally figured out a way to for the printing presses to so they could just bind bigger books than they used to be able to. <laughs> and that's it. You it what would usually be like two books is just like oh, I'm just gonna put one. Yeah, yeah, or, or like a, a story or, or like a, a novel. But but if you look at like paperback novels from like the i mean from several decades but let's just say you know late 60s mid 70s if you look at like a lot of those paperback sf novels they all tend to be around like they all around the same page count like a lot of the times it's like 256 pages for example they're pretty slim yeah yeah and that's a uh that's uh that's a printing thing huh well, that's why you get, uh, you know how when you when you read a, like a, a hardcover book or, or, a, or a trade paperback or something like that, and some of the times the, the book has a lot of blank pages at the end? Right. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a printing press thing, how they print the book, because, you know, the, the book pages are all, like, printed out on, like, a huge sheet of paper, and the, the, they're, they're not in order at all. But then when the machines, like, they take the huge piece of paper and they fold it down into, I think, sixteenths. And then that's what they, like, glue together with the book. So, mm. you know, you can't print, like, you know, the, that process is going to have, like, a set number of pages. And if you yeah. want it to be 
shorter or longer, it's going to be longer by a certain amount or shorter by a certain amount. So that's why you get all those uh, weird end papers sometimes in books. And so I guess that's what I'm saying about all those books from the 70s. Like they tended to be around the same length because, you know, there were just more mechanical restrictions on. Yeah. On books. I mean, that's how uh, that's how our magazine is is printed today. It's always 260 pages, including the the front and back cover. And the few times that we have made bigger issues, those are, I think, like 320 pages. But like, it has to be. I forget mm-hmm. the exact number, but it has to be specifically that number because you know that's how the the printing press works. Huh. Yeah. I did not know that. Yep. That's kind of neat. Yep. Neat things. Okay. And then in the 80s, I guess they changed that and we could get a new 800-page book from Stephen King. Well, you know, month. it's it's funny you bring <laughs> him up, but I think if I remember my reading correctly, that is the reason that the original version of The Stand is about 800 pages and then the original and uncut edition of the stand is like about 1200 pages good god yeah because his publisher at the time uh was Doubleday books and they had their own printing presses and they didn't think that they could print a book that big and sell it at the price point that they thought that it would need to be set at if it was gonna you know like make sense for how big the book is so you know they they told him and his uh, either his agent or his his editor at Doubleday, but you know they told him like, hey, either you can cut a third of this book out or we will, because we're only going to publish Ooh. up to an 800 page book. We're just not set up to do anything else. Yeah. Right. Wow. Cutting out a third of your book, Jesus yeah. Christ, that's got to be tough. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Oh gosh. So I think, I think we've gone on long enough. Oh my God, it's been like two hours. Um, And the cats are starting to attack me and demand treats. So it might be a good time to start closing down. But before we go, is there anything you would like to promote? Uh, Me that I would like to promote? uh, No, I don't really have much going on. I guess all I'll say is just to give... A few reading recommendations, things that I like that I think are great. Uh, my only official plug is just the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. You can yeah. find us in the magazine rack at Barnes and Noble and, and Books a Million, or uh, you know you can find us uh, online. Just uh, type in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction dot com. Mm-hmm. The website will pop up. It's old, but it works. Uh, we have, our, of course, our paper edition, which I like best but uh we have a uh we have a kindle edition and um we also have an electronic edition for non-kindle that is put out through weightless books weight as in right books that are not heavy so uh yeah uh, weightless books if, if you're into uh electronic i already talked about uh we who are about to if if people want to read Anything by uh, Mary Rickert. Uh, she's a short story writer, and I think she, she has one novel out. Her work is great. Anybody who is into, like, eco-science fiction, uh, you can't go wrong with Paolo Bacigalupi. Gene Wolfe, great writer. Mm. 
Catherine Valenti. I've only read her short story, The Future is Blue, but uh, that was really cool. Staked out what I thought was a, a real hard position about, um, well, I guess you could say nihilism, but the the protagonist of the story didn't see it that way. But So that was a cool story. Hmm. Also, uh, if anybody likes Ken Liu's work personally... Yeah. Oh, he's well, awesome. <laughs> personally, I think that his best story was a novelette called Ark that ran in the September-October 2012 issue of FNSF, and uh, or maybe it's it, it might be included in his uh, forthcoming second collection. I, I don't know what the table of contents is. I know that everybody likes to talk about Paper Menagerie, which we also published, yeah. and that I mean that that is also a great story. Uh, I. I just happen to think that Ark is even better. Uh, really class A work, and I feel mm. like it didn't get as much attention. Uh, but right. yeah, uh, and if if you like to read old SF, both for its own sake and also to uh, marvel at, wow, I can't believe those people thought those things back then. <laughs> My boss edited an anthology of repopulation science fiction stories from the 50s and 60s called Go Forth and Multiply. It, it came out from a, a small press, but I mean, that's that's what it is. It's, you know, stories from that that old trope that used to be so uh, prevalent back then of, you know, we crash landed on a planet or a virus wiped out almost everybody, for example, and now there's just a few of us left and we've got to get down to repopulating the species. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, some of them are actually still... There are a couple in there that are still pretty good stories just for their own, like, just as stories. And the other ones are uh, interesting pieces. You know, like I said, the you know the past is a whole different world and that can... Oh, you know yeah. that can be both it can be both tough to read uh sometime but it's also interesting to read you know a, a truly uh what is sometimes a truly alien outlook and you know in science fiction aliens are a, a big thing <laughs> right the past is a different yeah. country as they so, say yeah i'm just i'm rambling so just yeah you know uh read the magazine why don't you i think it's cool yeah, yeah, read the magazine. Buy the magazine. <laughs> okay, good. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and subscribe. Patrons get exclusive content, like episodes on Cabaret, The Dark Crystal, and Franz Kafka, as well as the ability to start fires with your mind. And be sure to join us next time when we talk about the perils of fandom. And until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com In color. <laughs> <laughs>